This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. Is society ready to confront the fact that women will also take jobs in the military? We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. In February of 2019, a district court judge in Texas ruled it's unconstitutional for only men to have to register with the Selective Service. The 1981 Supreme Court ruling said women could be excluded from a draft because they were not, quote, similarly situated with men for draft purposes. The decision argues that excluding women from the draft violates the Constitution's equal protection principles. The decision had no real impact on women or the selective service system. It did, however, spark a conversation about the necessity of a draft and the equal treatment of women in the military. I think it'd be too rough for them. And I think it'd be more dead women than it is the dead men. It would be fair if there was a draft for everybody to be drafted. Just allowing women to have the same opportunities as men throughout the military. I stand behind a woman's right to sign up voluntarily if that's what she chooses. But as far as them being held to the same standard to go to battle. Women are serving in combat roles now. I mean, they have breached that, what, five, ten years ago, where we have women serving in combat roles. CSIS Senior Associate Monica Medina served as Special Assistant to the Secretary of Defense from 2012 to 2013. She helped to craft the full integration policy, lifting the ban prohibiting women from serving in combat. I sat down with her to talk about the issues surrounding the selective service system, the role of women in the military, and the importance of fairness toward women who serve. Monica Medina, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. You worked for former Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta, I believe 2012 and 2013, and you actually helped to craft the full integration policy that lifted the ban on women uh, serving in combat. For our listeners who may not be as familiar with the details, kind of walk us through that policy and what it has done for women in the military. I'm happy to do it, and it was something I'm very proud of being a part of, but it was definitely a, a team effort, and it started with the Secretary himself, who was determined to do as much as he could to change the roles of women and to open up as much as he could. And when I arrived there, the Pentagon had already begun a process of opening positions one by one, looking at all of them individually and determining whether or not they could open particular positions that had been closed. Now, to stop and take a step back, what had happened was that there had been an exclusion put in place in the 90s, keeping women out of direct direct combat roles. So you couldn't engage in direct combat with the enemy, and that meant infantry and certain other types of positions were closed to women. But during the course of the wars of the last 20 years, we had seen women take more and more positions in that combat support that were putting them directly in enemy fire. And, you know, everyone from Senator Tammy Duckworth, who everyone knows was shot down in a role in combat support, to women who were part of convoys and all kinds of positions that put them in harm's way. So the nature of the battlefield had changed over time, and particularly in the wars in the Middle East. And so um, when we came in, Secretary Panetta, I think, was determined to open up more positions to women because the old rule didn't make sense anymore, given the 
current status of combat and and where women were serving on the front line. So what I did was say, as a lawyer, think about this problem from a legal perspective. And I didn't think that it was right that we open things one by one. I actually thought the law really should have us look at opening everything and then determining as under the Supreme Court case law and recent precedents, determining whether there were any gender-based exclusions that ought to be allowed. That was the proper uh, way to look at the issue. And so that's what we did that was sort of revolutionary at the time. And it took the secretary and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time, Marty Dempsey, who was also instrumental, and the joint staff and several other top military leaders who understood the importance of this moment in 2012 that the time had come for a real reexamination. And so when I proposed this kind of flipping of the paradigm, instead of opening jobs one by one, let's open everything and then let the military study what needs to be closed, that really, I think, flipped a switch for everyone. And there has been resistance. There are those who still have doubts about women's ability to fight in combat units, despite the evidence to the contrary. I'm just curious about your thoughts on what this does in terms of morale. I actually think that Chairman Dempsey was incredibly articulate at the announcement about this, that when you create a second-class citizen status for women within the military, it's very debilitating to morale. And actually lifting that raised morale. And the only thing holding morale down is now sort of outmoded attitudes, that gender bias that still exists among some people in the military. I found personally that younger people in the military, people at the in the lower ranks, thought this was perfectly fine and really had no issue with it at all. And it was really just sort of getting rid of the overhang of some previous discrimination that we really needed to do. And the rule was reinforcing that. So yes, there was pushback. There was a study done by the Marine Corps that was um, largely debunked. And uh, now, even they're on board. And the the last vestige, I think, of gender-based discrimination is the Marine Corps basic training, which I think is moving slowly, but hopefully surely towards a full integration. Let's talk about some specific cases. You told me about the case of Chief Petty Officer Shannon Kent. She was killed in a suicide bombing in Syria, and she was essentially a member of the Special Operations Forces, but she did not have the title. She did not have the benefits that came along with that. Um, Talk about her case and this kind of exclusion and how efforts are being made to change that situation. I think her case was really well covered in the media because it was such a tragedy um, when she was killed. But so were men killed at the same time. And the thing that was unfair to her, as you pointed out, was that she had gone through the training. She was standing side by side with people who had these other military status, and she couldn't have it because of her gender, because of when she started in the military. Today, I think those opportunities would be open to women, but they're being gradually grown into them instead of integrating at every level everywhere. So it's going to take time. And what I think about when I think about her case is 
all the firsts that are happening mm-hmm. now, all mm-hmm. the women who are breaking barriers. And it's because of people like her and Ashley White, who was chronicled in a book called Ashley's War by Gail uh, Zamak Lemon, who is a wonderful author. And whom we had on this podcast oh, to talk you? about Ashley's War a few years ago. She's wonderful. And her, her, her telling of that story was another important step in the awakening of people to the discrimination that was happening to women in the military. People think, oh, they're being all they can be. They're serving right alongside of men. What they didn't appreciate, I think most of the public isn't as aware of the discrimination that has been happening. And so changing the rules and then cases like these, and then looking at the firsts that are happening. We have a a woman who's assuming command of an infantry division for the first time. These are the kinds of firsts that really will, I think, help to change the culture in the military and help to change the public's attitudes towards women in the military. And just for those who may not be familiar with Ashley White, uh, First Lieutenant Ashley White uh, that we just mentioned, she was a part of what's called a cultural support team, a CST, and they work right alongside the Army Rangers, the Green Berets, the Navy SEALs in Afghanistan, she and the other CSTs could go places where men could not. Yes. But they were right there in the thick of things beside the men who were carrying out the fight. They were there on the the missions inside the communities that needed women in order to go along with the men to be able to get information from women in villages and to support or to be partners with the men in taking on these special operations missions that are really you know, unique to this particular war. They were essential. And that was another important thing. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the chiefs themselves were aware of these women. They knew that there were women already kind of well beyond would have been defined as the combat line. I think they felt they needed to change the rules in order to make sure that they were you know, abiding by them. They, the rules of combat that existed before were not real They couldn't apply if we wanted to be effective in the Afghanistan war. And you mentioned a lot of firsts, and I want to circle back to that because I want to ask you about the progress being made and what has to happen next. But um, more than a dozen women have graduated from Army Ranger School, and there have been two women who graduated from the Marines Infantry Officer course. So... That's progress, as you mentioned. What has to happen next? Well, the time, um, we need some time. The military made a very specific decision to grow women into these positions, not to try to integrate them at every level all at once, and that will take some time. What also needs to happen is uh, National Guard units, which is where a lot of women serve, need to be opened up to women. All the infantry units that are out there in state National Guards are sort of slowly catching up. And that's one of the places that's really behind and needs to catch up. The military is trying to be very deliberate. I think they could probably push the envelope a little bit more, but this particular administration isn't really encouraging that. I think if a different administration were in place, there might be more activity taking place inside the military. There would be leadership in the Pentagon pushing for that. Speaking of pushing the envelope a little bit, there was a court case from earlier this year uh, dealing with the selective service. And this ruling said that it was unconstitutional to have only men register for the selective service. What's the latest on that? Should women have to register? I've written a little bit about this because I do think it's important for women to register. And it's an important part of being a citizen about women taking their rightful place and their responsibilities. If we want to have equal rights and have protection of our right to 
equal pay. We also have to be willing to step up and be responsible and take part in the duties of citizenship. And this is one of them. The case Nothing really changed as a result of the case because the court didn't order the Justice Department or any other agency to change their practices. There's another case now pending in New Jersey of a woman who challenged the exclusion from the draft. And it'll be interesting to see how that one progresses. And I, if, if Congress doesn't act between now and then, um, once that appeal kind of works its way up to the Supreme Court, I think you know it will make it that far and it will be a really interesting case because there was a Supreme Court case that said women could be excluded from the draft. And that's really what's at issue here is that the facts of that mm-hmm. um, of that situation have changed. So that case could be overturned in the Supreme Court. Are people aware that this conversation is going on? I'm always amazed. I don't think they are aware that it's going on. I think people just assume that women can do anything they want to do and there's not been um, discrimination, legal discrimination against women in the military. But I think people understand that there's sexual harassment. They've heard all about discrimination in the military, but I don't think they understood that women were being legally held back. I also think there is a sort of a a national conversation about the role of women in these dangerous jobs. And you see it, you know, playing out lots of ways. Police officers, firefighters, women are on the front lines. They're first responders now in lots of uh, civilian roles. And the question is, is society ready to confront the fact that women, you know, will also be needing to take those jobs in the military? It raises the question of this awareness, and I'm amazed that more hasn't been said about it. There was a lot of conversation around the time the ruling became public, but since then, there's been very little conversation, and the fact that we do have multiple wars going on, and there hasn't been a draft in years, but there are some folks who say that this conversation should be resurrected, and the fact that there is a ruling that says, well, maybe if if there is a draft that shouldn't be men only, you would think that there would be more interest or or agree. a higher level conversation going on uh, because it it is something that we as a society need to talk about. I think um, what's happening now is a really interesting conundrum about the draft, about registration, about the need for for this process altogether. The military is more and more divided away from the rest of society. There have been a lot of conversations about the need for the civilian world to understand the military better and for the military to be more present in the civilian world. There's this big divide out there. And I think this is just, it's a symptom of that. One of the things we really need to talk about is whether we need a selective service registration requirement at all. And that's part of why there's a commission studying that right now. And Congress needs to look at it. And so, you know, the question of whether or not our military has been stretched in these last 20 years of deployments, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about the fact that people have been redeployed many, many, many times. And that's been a very difficult burden for the people who are in the military. Um, Meanwhile, the rest of society just goes on as if it happened somewhere else. And um, this 
whole conversation about whether women should register will, I think, spur a bigger conversation about whether we need a registration for the draft and whether we need public service, whether there's some requirement that young people do something to participate in serving their country. Is the conversation about women in combat roles or a resistance that uh, we seem to be getting past, but is that uniquely American? Because other countries don't seem to be having this conversation or they've had it years ago and are well past where we are. Other countries have um, had women serving in combat roles before us. Canada, Israel, many people know about Israel's military service requirement and women had been required to serve alongside men in every role. That was sort of the one country that was way far ahead. But there were other countries too, like Norway. Now, I think that the U.S. has come on side. The U.K. has changed their rules. So I think it really was a worldwide awareness about the capabilities of women and their desire to serve. I think that's the most incredible thing is that while not every woman wants to serve, there are plenty of women who are willing to step up and who want to serve and who, even as young girls, think about the fact that they want to serve their country. They want to fly combat missions. They want to be on the front lines. They want to be all that they can be. And that is an inspiration, I think, to uh, women everywhere around the world because we're so visible, because our military is so big, because our, our military is so world-renowned for its power and its might. And this is personal for you. You uh, attended Georgetown University on an Army ROT scholarship, and you started your legal career on active duty in the honors program of the Army General Counsel's Office, and you have been significantly recognized for your service uh, in the Army. You were awarded an Army Commendation Medal, and you also received a Meritorious Service Medal. So tell me about your passion. Um, I feel uh, that this has been a critical part of my life. I would not be where I am if I hadn't had the opportunity to serve in the military. And if the military hadn't given me a scholarship to go to college, I went to Georgetown University only because I was able to get that scholarship. And it was the first year that women were um, given ROTC scholarships in big, big numbers. There had been some in nursing. And, and then in 1976, the military opened the service academies. And then two years later, they decided to open up ROTC in ROTC in a big way. And I was in the first wave of women to apply. So, And I did not come from a military family. So this was something that was completely new to me. I showed up at Georgetown, one of four women in 1979. And I wasn't sure what I had gotten myself into, to be honest. But it really was one of the best things I ever decided to do because it gave me leadership training. It gave me um, the opportunity to, to go not only to a great university, Georgetown, but then to go on to law school and then to serve my country, which I am so proud of. I really can't say enough about that because as a, a daughter of an immigrant, it gave me opportunities to be here today to make a path for more women to be able to serve. And so I can't um, thank the government and the army enough for giving me my start. But I have to say, I was struck at the time when I graduated from college, I was branched air defense artillery, which is a combat arms branch. And I was given one of two or three slots in a combat arms branch that were set aside for women. But I was going to law school. And once I got out of law school, I was selected for the honors program and I was sort of left in that branch. And I thought, well, this is silly. Why aren't women actually being able to serve in the combat arm branches. And I, at the time, there was a law that was actually changed in the interim, and that's when they put in place this combat exclusion rule that was actually intended to open up 
vast numbers of jobs to women. And it did. And so women became pilots and women served in roles that they had never been allowed to before and pushed the envelope much farther than I could have. But that's what I think, you know, we really laid the groundwork for being able to undo the combat exclusion rule and why when I think about my career, I think about starting off in this combat arm slot, but not really, and the fact that that needed to change. And so the thread or the string that connects it all is the fact that I was in ROTC, I was branched combat arms, I wasn't really serving in a combat arm slot, and I thought that was unfair, and it needed to change, and time caught up, and women's roles caught up, and what women did caught up. And I was so impressed when I was in the Pentagon with the women. When you think about the women in the Senate now and the House, the women veterans who are serving, the things that they've done for their country weren't open to me. Those were opportunities that weren't open to me. But boy, have they made a difference. And and that's what inspired me. And I think what inspired Secretary Panetta and Chairman Dempsey to want to change the rules, to open it all up for women. Monica Medina, thank you so much. Thank you for your service. And I'm so glad you joined us here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thank you for doing this podcast. I love it. And I love to hear all about what women are doing. I think we're breaking through. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.